Now, the notion of transference, that is to say, is the repetition of earlier and forgotten experiences that are played out within the analytic situation between the analysand and the analyst. Um, uh, is a crucial sort of clinical concept that Freud um, formulates. And initially, it's seen as a major obstacle. Transference is a problem, right? It throws um, analyses off course. Um, the the um, an analyst is conscripted into some kind of forgotten scene. Um, uh, and, and the analysand experiences the analyst only in those terms. And Freud sees it as a problem, an obstacle, something negative to be got rid of. Okay. Um, and unfortunately, rational statements to the analysand, like, I'm not your father, <laughs> you know, don't do any good. Okay. Um, the, the analyst has been conscripted into a certain scenario, and no amount of rational uh, argumentation uh, uh, is going to kind of persuade the, uh, the, the analysand that that's what's happening um, uh, and that they should stop doing it and get on with the analysis. Okay. Until Freud comes to realize that actually it's transference that makes analysis work. Okay. That it's transference that is crucial to the analysis. Uh, and that his earlier model of simply remembering, of recall, uh, is, a, is, is an inadequate model for what takes place in the analysis, as it were. Now, in the, the essay the, I've asked you to read, which is uh, re, uh, Remembering, Acting Out and Working Through, he goes over a kind of little pack-potted prehistory of the different models of analysis that he's, that he's moved through. In other words, he returns to that essay um, that he co-authored with Breuer in 1893, which we began the course by looking at. Uh, and the problems of that. that. And it was the old model of catharsis uh, uh, under hypnosis and of the abreaction uh, uh, of the um, delayed and pent-up emotions attached to the, to the forgotten tra trauma scene. Now, he, so he begins by setting out in this essay uh, a simplified schema of three stages. Um, first of all, he says, the way he began uh, thinking about these things and practicing them was with Breuer's model of catharsis, which consisted of bringing into focus the moment at which the symptom was formed and appeared. That must have been the moment when it was caused, he thought. Um, and especially the mental processes and the emotions involved in that situation. The verb he uses here in these texts that we looked at, and more of them, 95, 96, is not remember, but reproduce, okay? uh, with its suggestion of a sort of acting out or reenactment of past experiences in order to, that the, they can discharge their pent-up and undischarged feelings uh, in, in conscious life in the immediate present. That's the first model. And Freud summarizes the clinical aim of that model of analysis as, quote, remembering plus abreaction under hypnosis. Remembering plus abreaction under hypnosis. The technical term abreaction is elaborated in that 1893 paper um, and it suggests that beyond the activity of cognitive recognition and, 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 and cognitive recollection of the past, there is this word, uh, what he calls an economic dimension. That is to say, a cathartic purging of an excessive quota of emotion that is tied to a set of traumatic memory traces and their associated ideas. And it's the retention of that that has kept those ideas active, simultaneously active and unconscious at the same time. 
So he, so he needs to discharge, abreact, um, purge cathartically that bottled up emotion. In the second stage, hypnosis is given up as the means of access uh, to the situation behind the symptom. Uh, and quote, the task becomes one of discovering from the patient's free associations what he has failed to remember. Okay, so um, the free associations of the patient around the symptom um, then become the focus of analytic attention. Where previously the patient's resistance had been overcome by hypnosis, now, quote, the resistance was to be circumvented by the work of interpretation and making his results known to the patient. So uh, the patient free associates and the analyst responds with what he calls um, free-floating attention. Free association on one side, free-floating attention of the analyst on the other side, which leads to the offer of an interpretation to the patient, which uh, in this model um, overcomes resistance. Where previously the patient's role had been to remember and abreact, purging the, what in 1893 he calls the strangulated affect of the scenes, uh, the traumatic scenes, now abreaction recedes into the background and is replaced by the expenditure of mental work which the patient had to make to overcome his internal criticism of his free associations. So the patient has to then, as it were, dismantle his own um, uh, resistance to his own free associations. And that work takes the place, Freud suggests in that model, model two, uh, that expenditure of mental work takes the place of cathar- something like catharsis. Then he goes on and says there's a third stage of development. Here the immediate focus of the analysis is no longer directly concerned with a particular problem, the problem maybe that drove the analysand into analysis, or with a particular symptom uh, and the moment of that symptom's appearance, so that there's an agenda. Right, we're working on this symptom, then we'll hope to get rid of that, we'll move on to the next one, and then on to the next one, as it were. Um, Freud abandons that whole whole, uh, notion of an agenda. Um, and the, the, inter, the analyst's interpretation now addresses not the traces of a past situation, but the patient's resistances as they are manifested in his speech and his free associations in the present. And the, the analysis begins with whatever the analysant happens to bring that day. Okay? It's no longer an agenda set by the analyst, but something that's set by the analysant who comes in and may just start free associating about, God, I had an impossible time getting here this morning, uh, and unloads a whole lot of stuff about, you know, why they're late, okay? Um, and so instead of saying, well, yeah, let's not talk about that. We were working on your, your symptom of X or Y, okay? Um, the analysis just sits, the analysis listens to what's being said. Whatever is at the, on the surface of the, of the analysis mind is where the session starts, okay? So in that sense, it's, it's set by the analysand, who, of course, when they bring that material, don't know what it is that they're bringing. Now, it's a, in some ways, as Freud presents it in that essay, it's a rather idealised schema. It's a new division of labour in which the analyst uncovers the patient's resistances and the patient um, often relates, the, duly obliges then, by relating the forgotten situations without any difficulty, unquote. The ultimate aim remains the same as the earlier two forms or models of the treatment, to fill in gaps in memory, um, and in now, not with the aid of hypnosis, but through the overcoming of resistances due to repression by interpretation. Now, as if in response to the rather simplified um, or idealised notion of this 
of this general schema. Freud then starts a very interesting excursus at that point in the essay, um, in which entails what I've pointed to at the end of the screen memory essay, a kind of deconstruction of the common sense under understandings or meanings of forgetting and remembering. Okay? And he goes through a series of psychical phenomena that are the raw material, the bread and butter, so to speak, of, of, of any analytic session. Um, a survey of phenomena uh, that is dealt with in, the, in, in analysis in which nothing is ever forgotten, but at the same time nothing is ever remembered. And forgetting and remembering then are kind of, as I say, put in inverted commas. Now, the, the implication of the, of the screen memory essay um, its dismantling of the common sense model of memory would go something like this. Um, in, the, in our ordinary understandings of memory, I now, me, in the present, remember that situation then, okay, back there. I remember me then. I now, here, remember me then. Clear demarcation between now and then, okay, and, but, a, but a kind of continuity at the same time, between me now remembering and me then that I, re that I remember. Okay. Whereas the dismantling of that gives us a model of memory um, in the Screen Memories essay in which um, this scene is reproduced now in the present, but I don't remember it. That's what the patient says. The patient acts out something in the present. Okay. It may be in the form of a screen memory, it may be uh, in some other form. And when the analyst says, the scene seems to be something like this, the patient says, but I don't remember that. Now that's the clinical anomaly that Freud encounters again, under different forms again and again. A scene re rep replicates itself, re is reproduced in the present. Okay? The, this scene remembers me, but I don't remember it. Okay? This scene conscripts me <laughs> into it, um, but, but it's not my memory. So there's that moment of non-recall and of repudiation, but in the very acting out of a particular scenario. And that's Freud's, in a way, his recurrent problem. How do I understand that? What on earth is happening when this happens? Okay. This comes, this, and this is central to the notion here of, um, uh, of transference. And he recalls um, from the Screen Memory essay this claim that, on the whole, we remember very, almost nothing from our early childhood years. We have certain memories that appear intense but insignificant, but encoded within them are the essentials. Okay, so at one level, everything's forgotten. At another level, the essential is retained, but we don't, but we don't remember it. Okay, we don't, and we don't recognize it. Okay. So something becomes active in the present, but not in its own terms, okay? Like the resultant that comes from the displacement of one set of forces by another, the throwing off course of something. Um, something is active in the present, but unrecognized um, as such. It's displaced into, it's known through its derivatives, if you like. So what we have, um, to use, make a, a linguistic distinction that Freud makes in his German, what we have is a distinction between a representative and a representation. A representation would be like a flash, ash, 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 back, ack, ack. I recall that, right? Transparent memory, right? The image I have in my mind is the, um, is the mimesis, the metaphorical um, likeness or similitude of an event that happened in the past, okay? But what we've got are not representations in that sense. We have representatives, derivatives, things that are connected but they don't present 
um, uh, what they're representing. <laughs> okay? they, they are not transparent mental photographs of something, but they are derivatives of it, and they carry the toxic load of the thing that they are not representations of, but which in some sense they are delegates of. They are representing in that sense. They are delegate, they're de delegates of this thing. And, and in the classic structuralist distinction, it's a metonymic rather than a metaphoric connection that's at stake there. Now, Freud says rather ruefully, oh, when I was working with hypnosis, it all seemed so much simpler and easier because the patient under hypnosis um, put himself back into the earlier situation, but he never seemed to confuse it with the present moment. Okay? Uh, and so they were kept, the present and the past were kept quite clear, distinct from each other. However, it's precisely their confusion that is the, the essence of transference. Okay? The confusion of the past moment which comes alive in the present, but in terms of the present, and is not recognized as past. Uh, so with the technique that's focused on transference and, the, and paying attention to the transference, Freud says, um, the patient does not remember anything of what he has forgotten and repressed, but he acts it out. He reproduces it, not as a memory, but as an action. He repeats it without, of course, knowing that he is repeating. So the acting out is a substitute for conscious recollection. Freud instances this repetition with a couple of examples, standard examples, almost formulaic examples um, from textbook psychoanalysis of a patient, for instance, who does, has no memory of being defiant or hostile to the authority of his parents, uh, but who behaves in a persistently hostile and defiant way to the, to the analyst or a patient who does not recall being ashamed and secretive about his sexual feelings um, and activities in the past, but he is intensely ashamed and intensely embarrassed about his entry into analytic treatment, and he treats it in the same way. Like the screen memory and the whole range of neurotic symptoms, transference onto the analyst is both an unavoidable alternative to remembering, uh, uh, and, but it's also a point of access if it's treated properly, to what is not being remembered. Okay, so it's not simply an obstacle. It's the crucial form in which the not remembered becomes present. Okay, so it's not simply an obstacle to be eliminated, to be got out of the way. It's to be paid enormous attention. It's the folk. If transference doesn't happen, analysis doesn't happen. That's, that's the, 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 the essence. As long as the patient is in the treatment, he cannot escape from this compulsion to repeat. And in the end, we understand that this is his way of remembering, unquote. And that phrase, compulsion to repeat, which is going to have a big history, it's got a great future to it, um, appears for the first time there. In particular, it provides the psychological basis for Freud's postulation five years later in 1919-1920 in Beyond the Pleasure Principle of the death instinct. As we'll see in looking at this late text, Freud's search for forms of compulsive repetition that are unpleasurable, even self-destructive, will include both the negative transference uh, in the analytic situation, as well as other forms of compulsive repetition uh, outside the analytic situation, and that he hopes might provide the basis, a psychological basis for uh, this general uh, postulation of a death instinct in all living beings. Now, how do we then understand this? Freud then um, uh, gives us this very interesting argument. The clinical aim is to fill in gaps of memory, okay, um, but it's to give a space to this compulsion to repeat, to act out, give us a privileged space to it in the analytic session. 
It becomes, Freud says, a playground and allows this compulsion to repeat, to expand, in order for these repressed or hidden things to become put into action once again. And I quote, We regularly succeed in giving all the symptoms of the patient's neurotic illness a new transference meaning and replacing his ordinary neurosis by, quotes, a transference neurosis, um, which, and only that can be cured by the therapeutic work. The transference thus creates an intermediate region between illness and real life, through which the transition from one to the other is made. The new condition has taken over the features of the illness, but it represents an artificial illness which is at every point accessible to our intervention. It's a real piece of experience, uh, uh, Freud says, now in the present. This is an extraordinary conception of a hybrid formation that is artificially induced um, um, within the artifice of the analytic situation in its conventions of free association, speech rather than action, regular attendance at agreed times, um, sitting, lying on the couch, etc. The, the artifice of the session creates a kind of framed um, theatre, if you like, in which this um, uh, a tra a transference neurosis can be played out. At the same time, however, it is a piece of real experience, one whose function is to actualize anew something else that pre-existed it. The original conflict emerges from the unconscious and, from its and its deposits from the past into the space of the transference as a new present object, the object of the free-floating attention of the analyst. The rationale for this is pragmatic. Freud says we cannot overcome an enemy who is absent or who is outside our range. Okay? We can't deal with something that is merely past, over and done with, something that is merely in absentia. Okay? So it's the presentness of the repetition in relation to the analyst that allows a new kind of therapeutic intervention. Freud's clinical claim is that the absent infantile conflict can only be targeted and resolved by proxy through the artificial transference neurosis that replaces it in the present moment of the analysis. But this proxy is not simply an effigy. He begins one of his essays by saying, the in the transference, we are not dealing with something in effigy. And that's a legal term. It was once a, a legal term where um, uh, outlaws who could not be captured were punished in effigy. That is to say, a straw dummy of them was burnt or ritually beheaded as a sort of symbolic casting out and punishment of somebody you couldn't get hold of because they were outside the law. They, they were punished in effigy. And Freud said, that doesn't work in analysis. So you, so you need to make that present, okay? um, active again uh, in the present, acted out in the present. Okay? The patient repeats everything that has made its way uh, from the sources of the repressed into his manifest personality. He says, the essay ends with him um, talking about the sources uh, of what's being repressed as being something that has entered into the very formation of his personality and his ego. He doesn't stress the unconscious. It's a rather curious way to end the essay. Um, but later analysts, and I'm thinking in particular of Laplanche, um, uh, and in that secondary reading essay I, I gave you as a, as a reference um, for this week. Um, Laplanche makes a distinction between diff two different modalities of the transference. What in French is a distinction between en plane and en creux, which actually comes from um, carving and engraving. If something's engraved on, on plane, it's embossed. 
if it's en creux, it's kind of like hollowed out. So the, what I've translated as the filled-in transference and the hollowed-out transference. The filled-in transference is what Freud's talking about at the end of this essay. That is to say, everything that's resistant, that's dysfunctional, that's become built into the ego and that resists the unconscious, okay, um, that gets repeated in the transference. It's what Laplanche calls the transference on plane. This has to be dismantled um, uh, uh, deconstructed to allow a second modality of the transference to be played out. And that second modality of the transference he calls metaphorically, Laplanche does, the transfert en creux. That is to say, the hollowed out transference. What does this mean? And this is where Laplanche's model of the situation of primal seduction um, is invoked. Um, beyond everything that has been incorporated dysfunctionally into the structure of the resistant ego, um, which are sort of, in Laplanche's terms, they are the translations that have been made of the original enigmatic message. Okay? Uh, translations that are partial uh, and that have actually um, uh, repressed as much as they've translated. They need to be dismantled. Uh, and uh, a re-encounter with that original primal enigma uh, needs to take place in the space of the analytic session. Okay. Um, uh, that is to say, the, so the actual sources of the unconscious um, and that have produced the unconscious need to be re-encountered, and that's what Laplanche, in differentiating two different modes of the transference, calls the encreur, the, the, the hollowed-out transference, the re-encounter with the uh, originary enigma in the situation of primal seduction. We're now turning to uh, Freud's later text, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, uh, where the death instinct stroke death drive uh, is first formulated. Uh, it's a puzzling uh, and a very interesting theoretical development of Freud's, and it depends on uh, understanding, first of all, what he means by the pleasure principle in order to understand what a beyond of the pleasure principle might be. In order to do that, I've provided you with two diagrams uh, by Laplanche, uh, which are on the Moodle, and which are a way of attempting to situate uh, the concept of the pleasure principle and the concept of the death instinct stroke drive. Those two diagrams come from the same chapter uh, of Laplanche's book, Life and Death in Psychoanalysis, where he's trying to think about um, this strange concept of the death drive. And he's trying to interpret it. Why should this concept have arisen at this point in the development of Freud's thought? Okay, and that's the context for, um, uh, for the diagrams. Um, and he's thinking about the underlying structural logic of the, of the Freudian field, of the psychoanalytic field, uh, and the way in which certain um, conceptual configurations repeat across 30 years, uh, or more even. Uh, and one of the striking things I think about um, a lot of Freud's late work is the way in which the apparently repudiated model of trauma comes back okay, in, in different forms. Um, and we'll, we see it in, uh, explicitly in, his, in chapter two of Beyond the Pleasure Principle where he's considering forms of repetition. And he's concerned with um, the way in which certain forms of repetition uh, can't be explained by, in any very obvious way, by um, the pleasure principle which he had seen hitherto as dominating uh, psychic processes and is in some sense organizing psychic structure. So there are forms of repetition that have become increasingly a problem. They're a problem clinically, but they're a problem theoretically for understanding. 
And so he's, he's and of course this is 19, uh, this is in, well it's published in 1920, but he's thinking about it in the years beforehand. It's the years immediately after the First World War. And one of the things, the First World War and the kind of violent trench warfare and loss of life in the First World War did, it put trauma back on the, on the agenda again. Uh, war trauma, uh, not the trauma of, of hysterics in hospitals um, or in um, uh, middle-class patients in, uh, on the couch in Vienna, but the trauma of soldiers, um, of shell shock, um, and, and indeed of um, bombed, bombed cities as well. So war trauma um, is on the agenda again, uh, where it, it, the notion of trauma had been had dropped off, had been dismantled, repudiated, deconstructed in various ways, and suddenly you get a whole flood of people, uh, overwhelmingly men, soldiers, but also some sub civilians of both sexes, who are exhibiting certain uh, symptomologies that had been um, uh, talked about and analysed back in the 1890s. So suddenly traumatic neurosis is, has come, come back again, as it were, and Freud's considering that um, again as an anomalous form of repetition. How do we explain that in terms of the pleasure principle? Okay? The, 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 um, the compulsive uh, repetitions of, of war trauma. And particularly, say, the dreams, the dreams in which the dreamer replays the moment where the shell burst in the, tran in the trench or when a friend got killed next to him or something like that. Uh, how can that be explained by the pleasure principle? So the question of repetition and negative self-destructive forms of repetition um, begin to challenge the notion of, uh, of, a, of a mental principle that seeks to, uh, that seeks to maximize pleasure and avoid unpleasure, uh, and in particular, a, a, a pleasure-unpleasure distinction that is formulated by Freud as it is in chapter one of Beyond the Pleasure Principle in economic terms, okay? In terms, uh, in, in, that is to say, in terms of a principle that is taken from initially physiology or biology um, and imported into, into uh, psychology, and that's the principle of constancy or homeostasis. Homeostasis and its feedback mechanisms are demonstrable aspects of the, the biological organism of uh, of, um, of, of all life, and it has a certain plausible um, purchase on mental life. Um, and Freud identifies uh, the rise of tension in the psychical apparatus with unpleasure, and and the reduction or discharge of tension or or, or energy uh, with pleasure. And I suggest I suggest in the email I sent out the ambiguities that attach in some ways to this. Um, uh, and Freud's, uh, uh, Freud's um, consideration begins as a, as a psychological analysis and reflection on a range of experiences of repetition. Uh, and then it, it turns into a very strange reinvocation of the biological. Uh, and we're not looking at that aspect to be on the pleasure principle. We haven't got time because we're more interested in the uncanny and the literary implications of that. Uh, but uh, when Freud formulates um, an answer to his question uh, as to whether these forms of repetition can or cannot be explained by the pleasure principle, and he then posits something that is, quotes, beyond the pleasure principle, um, the psychological phenomenon is the compulsion to repeat, the repetition compulsion. 
um, a, a repetition compulsion even when what's being repeated is distressing, painful, or self-destructive. Um, but he then um, formulates that uh, as, 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 a, as an independent um, drive or instinct. And there's a real ambiguity about drive, the drive-instinct distinction. He uses the word Todestrieb in, in German. So he is using the word Trieb. Um, Todd as Trieb, or death drive. Okay. But he wants to give it a biological grounding. And the whole of chapters 5 and 6 uh, an investigation of what was then contemporary theories of biological instinct to try and, to try and say that what we're facing here is, is actually an instinct, though he doesn't use the word instinct. He goes on referring to it as trebe, totus trebe. But he wants to root it in biology, and not just the biology of human beings, but any, li any form of living matter. Okay, so it becomes this extraordinarily generalized, almost metaphysical principle, inherent, he wants to claim, in matter, in living matter. Um, and it's a principle uh, of entropy, of driving what is highly organized or sophisticated or complex to simpler and simpler and simpler levels, and finally um, exhausting, uh, driving, uh, discharging all, reser all reservoirs of energy um, and, and, and leading to a kind of self-obliteration. And he wants to see this then uh, as a general principle of all living matter, li all living being. Um, profound, it was always extremely con co uh, controversial within psychoanalysis and rejected by a lot of, not the f clinical phenomenon which it's based, but the conceptualization as a, dry, as a death instinct is, was often rejected by fellow psychoanalysts. But Laplanche wants not just to reject it or even to criticize it, um, but to interpret it. Why now? Why at this point? What is, the, what is this concept doing, arising at this point? And so there's a, it's, it's, it's arising at a point of transformation in Freud's thought, where on the one hand, he's about to posit this grand dualism of life instincts uh, versus death instincts, as Strachey translates it. And in this case, the translation as, of instinct is a description of, 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 of a of the rebiologization of the psychical that's taking place in uh, Freud's theory in this text. At the same time, the second topography of not conscious, pre-conscious, unconscious, but ego, superego, and id is being formulated, right? and it comes out of the whole reflection on narcissism and the ego, etc., and the unconscious dimensions of the ego. So all these things are incubating in Freud's theory, and we get catch glimpses of them in that fascinating essay, The Uncanny, where Freud takes, a, you could say at one level, a kind of holiday from the conceptual impasses that he's, uh, uh, he, and he's rethinking of his, both his drive theory and of the topography. And he's, he, he starts thinking about the, the category of the uncanny, das Unheimliche. Uh, and, uh, and he goes off and he rereads E.T.A. Hoffmann, the great German early 19th century romantic writer, who was also, interestingly, on the one hand, a composer uh, and a dramaturg in opera uh, and wrote a lot about music. He was also a lawyer uh, and a judge in the, in the, I think, in the Prussian, um, before, this is before the unification of Germany, I think it was in the Prussian judicial system. Um, he's an extraordinary figure, Hoffman. Um, and he, he was widely read in the psychological literature of the period, so he was interested in the mental pathologies of the criminals who appeared in, in court before him. 
So extraordinary figure, Hoffman. So Freud goes off and rereads a lot of his work um, and zeroes in in particular on the Sandman um, and gives a kind of reading um, uh, of the Sandman in relationship to his reflections on what looks like an, a completely unrelated thing, this, the aesthetic of the uncanny. You know, Freud going off and doing something completely different, but of course he's not, just as when he went off in uh, 1897 and started reading and thinking about Sophocles, Oedipus, and Shakespeare's Hamlet. He was, as it were, ostensibly thinking about something different, but actually in reading those, in engaging with those tragedies, he was thinking through in a displaced way um, uh, the whole question of trauma versus development, etc. Uh, so also in, 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 in turning to the aesthetic of the uncanny, and Hoffman's story, The Sandman, uh, he's replaying in various ways the question of repetition uh, and how are we to understand repetition um, and, and to what extent it can be conceptualized um, in, in this way or in that way or understood entirely in terms of uh, the Oedipus complex or whether there's other elements at work that are, that are pushing beyond that. Okay. And so what's fascinating, uh, uh, in terms of the trajectory we've followed in the course, is the way in which the old model of trauma comes back again, okay? And, and a lot of the notions of fixation to a trauma, uh, et cetera, uh, come back again in text after text of Freud's, the very last text he wrote, Moses and Monotheism. Um, uh, he writes this specul wildly speculative history of, 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 of Moses and, and, and the... Jewish people and their exit from Egypt, etc., etc., um, the Ten Commandments, uh, in terms, exactly in the terms of trauma theory, only uh, elevated to the level of, um, a, a, sort of a, a collective level rather than in a collective psychology rather than individual psychology. So it's a very interesting, in, in text after text, uh, in late Freud, the way in which tr um, the conceptual configurations of trauma keep coming back. And of course, in various ways, Freud is being made to confront it as the notion of fixation to a trauma and repetition. Freud is made to confront it clinically. In the first diagram on the Moodle, I thought that very useful way of pinning down the ambiguities around the notion of the pleasure principle, because the term slips between opposites. And I think Laplanche's little diagram helps one see uh, that ambiguity. Um, Okay. Uh, now, there are two, uh, there are two uh, arrow, uh, lines, arrowed lines. Uh, one represents uh, uh, the pleasure principle and the other represents this thing that is beyond the pleasure principle that he's going to call the death drive or death instinct. Um, uh, and the first one, first of all, goes up like that, then it goes down again, and then uh, continues. And then there's a, a, another version of it in which it goes down and it comes up again. Okay. Now, the, the pleasure principle, his, 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 his most consistent um, identification of the pleasure principle is with the principle of constancy, with the tendency towards homeostasis. And we saw that in a, in, in a number of early texts. And the whole notion of the instinctual functioning as against drive functioning um, turned on that. Um, distinction, as it were. Okay, so in situations in which the, or whether the organism or the, psych the, the psychical entity um, experiences a huge rise in, in energy and in excitation and trauma is the classic case where 
uh, a breach of the, of the ego's boundaries and uh, a flooding, a swamping of intense excitations that were unexpected and unmanageable takes place, okay, then the, the, uh, the apparatus regulated by the pleasure principle seeks to reduce that down to N, N, where N is the original starting point and optimum level for functioning, okay? Uh, so, go, so having shot up there due to trauma, the pleasure principle, PL, seeks to bring it back again to the level of optimum functioning. And in a case where the opposite happens, okay, where a sort of psychic bottoming out or draining away of psychical energy takes place, um, then the pleasure principle then seeks obviously to increase internal energy levels to bring the, the psychic organism back to uh, that same level. Okay? So the pleasure principle could operate in either way, depending on the circumstances in which it operates, but the aim is always restorative, to bring back to something, but to the what it's bringing back to is not zero, what it's, what it's bringing or attempting to, um, and it's one tendency, albeit a dominant one, um, what it's bringing back to is a level of op that is optimum for mental and bodily functioning, okay? which of course is not zero, obviously. Uh, and the other line in his diagram is that one. Um, now, we can call that the death drive. Uh, now, that can look um, as if you know, it's heading towards homeostasis in certain circumstances. So this pressure towards discharge, okay? And, and it can look the same as this, right? Uh, so that's, in, a, in a way, it's that ambiguity that allows Freud, uh, in, this, in the statement I quoted, to say, the facts that have caused us to believe in the predominance of the pleasure principle in mental life also find expression in the hypothesis that the mental apparatus endeavours to keep the quantity of excitation in it as low as possible, or at least to keep it constant. And there's a real difference between these two. He, he produces that or as if they were kind of synonyms virtually, to keep it as low as possible, or at least to keep it constant. Now, they're, they're two radically different alternatives, actually. So there will be circumstances in which the pleasure principle um, you know, operates a, a pressure towards discharge. And so it can look like the death drive, okay? But the death drive doesn't stop there. The death drive is something, is a pressure towards absolute discharge, okay? To a radical, even catastrophic emptying out, okay? Um, so, and it doesn't stop there, it just continues to nothing. So it ruptures or it breaks through or uh, homeostasis. In certain phases, it might look like um, it's, it's heading towards homeostasis or it may look as if it's identical with the pleasure principle, okay? But it's not um, trying to restore things back to an optimum level, okay? It's, it's this pressure towards absolute discharge um, in economic terms. So that's the, that's the ambiguity. Um, uh, at times, in some of Freud's formulations, you pull yourself up and you think, hang on, that almost equates the pleasure principle with the death drive. Um, so that's the usefulness, I think, in that diagram, because it shows you the distinction between these two tendencies and the way in which at times under certain circumstances they can look identical, but, but actually they're not. They're, they're radically antithetical. Now the other diagram from in Laplanche's commentary on um, the death drive, that kind of U um, 
uh, uh, bend diagram. And it's, it's, again, it's a very useful one because it's looking back over the whole Freud's whole theoretical career or his theoretical trajectory and it's seeing an absolute consistency at one level of his theory, albeit not at another level of his theory, okay? And that is a kind of series of, of oppositions, of antitheses that have structured pairs of terms that have structured his arguments in text after text across a 30-year period. And so he sets them up there uh, in, in, in terms of their opposites. On the one hand, there's the primary processes versus the secondary processes that we saw in Freud's account of the dream work. Okay. Um, there's the notion of free energy that circulates in the unconscious and bound energy, energy that is fixed and bound um, to certain representations, which is, as it were, fixated in some way. Uh, there's the opposition itself between binding and unbinding. Okay. And in the first theory of the drives, there's the opposition between sexuality and the ego. Okay? And sexuality is on the side of primary processes, free energy and unbinding, the sexual drive, okay? as distinct from the instinct. Um, and the ego is attempting to control, master, bind, um, contain, sublimate even, the drive. So the ego is on the side of the secondary processes of bound energy of binding, etc. All that is consistent, okay. Um, and in a way, the, le the last theory of the drives, of death drive uh, uh, and um, eros or life drive, repeats that opposition, okay. So it looks as if it fits in. But what's Extraordinary is the way sexuality has moved from one side of the opposition to the other. That's why there is this crossing over, this chiasmus. Okay? So suddenly, in, this, in the final version of the, um, second, the, the second so-called theory of the drives or of instincts, um, we've got a, a life drive that Freud wants to describe, which amalgamates things that he'd previously distinguished, that, um, in which both biological instinct and psychical drive are amalgamated. And so also is um, ego libido, the libido that binds the ego into a unity. These things are all um, put together under a single heading. Um, and sometimes he refers to it as eros, or the old, he takes the old term from ancient literature, eros, uh, or the life instinct or the life drive. Uh, and Laplanche's interpretation of the emergence of the concept of a death drive is precisely to write the balance. Okay, is sexuality in Freud from the On Narcissism paper of 1914 onwards comes increasingly to be thought by Freud in terms of uh, libidinal binding uh, and uh, the formation of, uh, of object relations and libidinal ties to objects and even identification itself um, is, is, is rooted in uh, a, a kind of lib libidinal internalization of the image of the other. Okay? So the whole idea is of libido as a form of, 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 of binding. Uh, it becomes a dominant emphasis in texts after 1914 and celebrated as such. Um, and in a way, um, Laplanche argues that that's the real original, the new concept, is this this life drive, which is 
amalgamated and brought together things that had previously been kept separate. Drive, instinct, and narcissistic libido are all brought together. And the crossover point, I would say, in the diagram where sexuality passes from one side of the opposition to the other, Laplanche doesn't label it, uh, but the crossover point is narcissism. Okay? You can almost write that into your diagram. At that point with the two sides, the chiasmus, the crossover, is, is narcissism. It's through his thinking through the implications of narcissism okay, that sexuality gets repositioned uh, as being on the side of binding um, and the secondary processes. Uh, and that almost, uh, in Laplanche's account, means that something else has to write, write the opposition. Okay? There has to be a re-emergence of a force that unbinds uh, that undoes the ego, that challenges the ego from within, that throws it into crisis. Uh, and this is what Freud calls the death drive. And he never, he never, um, he never gives it an, its own energy source. It's rather interesting. Though he thinks of it as being, uh, and a lot of later psychoanalysts take on board some version of it, where they see it as being uh, the tendency to violence or aggressivity, okay, as a, as a non-sexual um, force or tendency opposed to sexuality. Um, Freud never gives it, um, you know, he talks about a libido, but he never talks about a destrudo, okay? It's a separate energy source for this tendency. So where does the energy um, that fuels the death drive, where does it come from? Okay, if it hasn't got its own energy source. Uh, and as Laplanche points out, actually, this is simply, the death drive is simply performing the function that, that the sexual drive originally performed in Freud's theory, okay? As pressing towards discharge, towards immediate gratification, uh, as resisting um, postponement and delay, resisting the ego, even undoing the ego from within. And he says there, uh, in, the, in, the, in the lines just before the little U-bend diagram, I'll read out those sentences just beforehand. The energy of the sexual drive, as is known, was called libido by Freud. Born of a formalistic concern for symmetry, the term destrudo, once proposed to designate the energy of the death drive, did not survive a single day. It wasn't proposed by Freud. I think it was proposed by somebody else, and Freud just refused to take it on board. For the death drive does not possess its own energy, Laplanche says. Its energy is libido. Or better put, the death drive is the very soul, the constitutive principle of libidinal circulation of the primary processes, of the uh, fluid and unceasing substitution of one object or term for another. Okay. So, this, so, he, so it's, and he, he takes, uh, Laplanche takes a, a very suggestive phrase from one of Freud's letters where he talks about, uh, you know, a certain for forms of sexuality as Lucifer Amor, <laughs> Lucifer Amor as this demonic form of, of the sexual, okay, which, which doesn't um, readily accommodate itself to um, sublimation and binding to a, to a single object and to a kind of um, mental, if you like, a mental homeostasis or psychical homeostasis. It's what disrupts homeostasis. So the death drive for Laplanche is a kind of almost conceptual symptom or flag of, of, a, of, a, of an impasse. At Freud's attempt in chapters five and six of that book 
um, on the pleasure principle, to ground it in biology, again, is something that Laplanche would, would radically contest, as indeed with a lot of psychoanalysts would radically contest. And he wants to keep it as a, as, 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 as a psychical phenomenon that is to do precisely with what is primitive and, and uh, unmanageable in the sexual drive, particularly the sexual part drive. Okay? Uh, this is going right back to the infantile sexuality, the sexual part drive something that hasn't yet been accommodated to whole persons uh, at the level of object choice. Okay, so those, those two, grams, two diagrams I find quite helpful in getting one's mind around the notion of the death drive. Okay. Uh, and Freud does use the adjective demonic of it, both in Beyond the Pleasure Principle and in the Uncanny essay. The Uncanny essay, Freud is writing in 1919 contemporaneously with his writing Beyond the Pleasure Principle, uh, and though he doesn't mention uh, the death instinct as such, the concept is present, though the, t the term isn't present in the Uncanny essay. So the Uncanny is a way of thinking about the same issues in relationship to the aesthetic question of the Uncanny and of uh, our friend E.T.A. Hoffman's novella The Sandman, uh, which exemplifies uh, something of the repetition, the uncanny repetition compulsion. And we'll be looking at this next week.